Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have such a wonderful show for you this evening. Meredith Bagby is here, and we are just going to talk about the wonderful, wonderful astronaut class that really uh, uh, redefined space travel and diversity, and, and it just, just changed so many things. And her book is truly wonderful. So we'll be getting to her in just a moment, and I am just thrilled that she is here with us. Before we get started, a few things. Uh, first of all, we just completed a cycle of Social Flight's Fly to Win Challenge, giving away a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset, and we are now on to the next phase. I am so excited. We are giving away an Aspen E5 electronic flight instrument. And so all you need to do is get the Social Flight mobile app, or go to socialflight.com, get out there and fly, check in at any airport. Even if you just go once and check in, you are entered in to win that Aspen E5. In addition, our Social Flight uh, podcast is available, of course, on most streaming services. Services, just go out there, check that out. And the Social Flight FAA learning system is there with new courses available where you can get FAA wings, credits, as well as credits for the Aviation Maintenance Technician Program, or if you are an AMP mechanic with an inspection authorization, you can get your legal education certificates there through socialflight.com. Tonight's broadcast is brought to us by U Avionics, their AV30, AV20, Sky Beacon, Sky Sensor, all their ADSB products. They're just fantastic, and you can see them in our web series, Building the T-51 Mustang behind me, that actually has that, and then uh, also we're installing it in our Bonanza. Now, um, I do want to take uh, a moment out uh, tonight to, to recognize some recent news that is uh, quite tragic. Remembering Treat Williams. Um, Treat was an iconic and talented actor, writer, and passionate grassroots aviator. He's been a guest on this show multiple times, and uh, uh, tragically, he was uh, killed yesterday in a motorcycle accident near his home in Vermont. He was a truly remarkable person who touched countless lives and I considered him a close friend and he will be dearly missed. The world is an emptier place without him and I just wanted uh, to say that and send that message out there to anyone who had any contact or just knows him to keep him in your thoughts and of course his family uh, during this very, very difficult time. Despite this sad event, tonight's show is in its essence about hope and change and how tragedies are overcome because the space shuttle program really was one that uh, it, it embodied so many different things, but tragedy and, and overcoming things and change is a part of what we will certainly be discussing tonight. And I think it's relevant at a time like this. Our guest tonight is Meredith Bagby, author of The New Guys, the historic class of astronauts that broke barriers and changed the face of space travel. Meredith is a nonfiction writer as well as a film and TV producer with numerous compelling titles to her credit. She was a senior film development executive at DreamWorks, a political reporter and producer for CNN, and a teaching fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics. Her story about the amazing NASA astronaut class of 1978 is one of the most fantastic books I have ever read. And one of its subjects, Fred Gregory was a guest here on the show. You can see that on Social Flight's YouTube channel. Uh, let me bring her on the line now. And please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Meredith Bagby. Hi, Meredith, how are you? Hi, Jeff, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. I appreciate it. Oh, it is so well-deserved. I, I want to hold up your book here because, um, you know, we're obviously going to talk a lot about it. This is, I, I mean this sincerely, this is one of the most wonderful books I have read. It, wow, thank it you. Take, and, and, I, and I read a lot of books. <laughs> I get sent quite a few, but I can tell you, it you can't put it down. 
it tells a true story that is just it's just there's more to every i think you have five books put into one probably one book for each person that's actually in it um tell me how this started you you've written on a bunch of different subjects what is it that brought you to the 1978 astronaut class um, well, it, it's actually started, the story started a long time ago for me. Um, I, when I was a kid, I grew up in Florida and my teacher, my fifth grade teacher applied to be the teacher in space um, and he got pretty far. Um, of course, he didn't get it, but Christy McCulloch did. And uh, we spent the year though learning about NASA and going to the Cape. And you know, when Challenger launched, I was one of the millions of kids that watched it live and we were out on a field in Florida. And of course that always stayed with me. And um, years later when I got into film and storytelling, I was researching something totally different. And what I, I found this little detail, which was that four people in the class in 1978 died on Challenger um, along with Krista McCullough. And, I was very curious about this class. It was a class in 1978, and uh, it, 78 was really an interesting moment for NASA because it was the first time that women and people of color were recruited to become astronauts. Before that, it had been all white military um, men who, who were recruited to be astronauts. So this is the first time women got to do it and people of color and lots of civilians, people who were scientists. And in part, they got to do it because the shuttle, uh, which was NASA's newest vehicle, was larger than any other uh, space vehicle that NASA developed. And it could take not just pilots, but also civilian scientists up to do experiments. And uh, I was just fascinated by this class, which had so many firsts in it, including the first American woman to space, the first African-American to space. Um, the first Asian American to space, the first Jewish American to space, and on and on. So um, I, I had just I had to write about this this class. It was just uh, captured my imagination. You know, one of the things that I find really interesting about uh, the storyline and and the way the book is actually written is there's a couple things on one side of the equation where you look at the space shuttle being sold as this kind of safe, easy way into space that makes it possible for ordinary, almost almost ordinary citizens to go on board. And then this idea that we're gonna make a mission of diversity, that in itself, when you say that and you think about it, can very easily lend itself to saying that we're gonna lower the bar and we're just gonna do diversity for diversity's sake and these types of things. The On the opposite side of that, the detailing of who these individuals were that made up the 1978 astronaut class actually is quite the opposite. These are some of the most accomplished, most amazing individuals on the planet managing to come together that actually seems to have made it a, a raise the bar on, on who went into space. Tell me your thoughts on that. I think that's a great point. Um, you're absolutely right. I think there was a perception that, and, and it was wasn't even a perception. As I think, what one of the the selling points for the shuttle was anybody can go. You can go someday, um, and that was kind of what NASA portrayed. But you know, the truth of the matter was that the shuttle was very much a test vehicle, and it was quite dangerous, uh, which proved out in Challenger. But even before the Challenger accident, there were a number of close calls. Um, that these astronauts witnessed and almost died in. And um, and yet here was this perception that it was much easier uh, to go. Um, so it's it's funny how these two things lived uh, with each other. But when what I was what I was really shocked to find out, and it wasn't it's not that well known is how many close calls they really had. But once you start to scratch the surface and do some research, you realize that that these folks were very brave and just as heroic as you know the first astronauts were. Mm, absolutely. I mean, the, so it, it, it's interesting that there was this public perception and this mission that NASA had at the time to sh say that it was safe and to try to show this as a finished program or something that, that was, you know, well-polished, very safe, and yet behind the scenes, as you mentioned, was extremely experimental, had so many challenges and problems in the back end, and, and the astronauts realized that the difference between public perception and what they were supposed to be saying and what they were really 
risking was fairly dramatic. That's true. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting, like Anna Fisher, who was the first mom in space, she told me that when she went up, when she found out she was going and the night before, the week before she left, she had just had a baby. And mm -hmm. so she went out and got the, she's like, I was aware of the danger and I wanted to make these videos for my daughter just in case I didn't come back. So she went out and got a VHS camera and she and her husband made all these really sweet videos with their daughter saying, I love you, and, you know, and all this, and because she understood, I mean, she knew, she was right on the ground floor, and she knew, you know, the dangers that um, they faced. Um, I, Judy Resnick, who did, in fact, die in Challenger, uh, was in a, uh, her first flight, there was, you know, an engine exploded on the launch pad, and they almost died in this invisible <laughs> gas fire. So, I mean, there were lots of these incidences, <clears throat> and um, they, we're aware of some of the dangers, not all of the dangers. I mean, the O-rings as an example, which ultimately was the thing that, um, you know, created the Challenger disaster, they were not aware of. Um, so they were aware of some of the dangers, but not all of the dangers. Right. That's, that's That makes a lot of sense. Um, let's go back to a little bit to the beginning of, of the program. The well, Another item that I think is is interesting about NASA as a whole is it really seems to have been a, a fairly significant turning point that that uh, back in 1978 that uh, prior to this NASA was was very very focused on only being a military track towards being an astronaut and a hundred percent like the classic the got to be the right stuff superhuman you know pilots for, that are specifically and only white men from you know a specific branch of the military and breaking that barrier did not get support even from some of those astronauts. Yes, <laughs> that's true. There was a lot of resistance at the time. I think that, especially with regard to the women, there was a feeling that maybe they couldn't hack it. Um, and there was a lot of pushback. Um, the Mercury 13, the story of the Mercury 13 is, I touched on briefly in my book, but it's a great story about um, a group of women who were put to the same test that the men were and did thrive and could have, a few of those women could have become astronauts. Um, they were denied and went all the way to Congress to kind of plead their case and were told to wait their turn, um, that we weren't ready as a society. The men ha fight the wars and the women take care of the household. I mean, that was the kind of um, the framework, I think, the people of color also faced a similar, uh, a lot of the black men that wanted to become test pilots or go through Chuck Yeager's school to become astronauts were not treated particularly well. Um, and so they were denied entrance. And it wasn't really until Congress, you know, the Civil Rights Act passed, and then Congress forced NASA under scrutiny to open their doors to women and people of color that had happened. Um, but they had to be forced. Now, once NASA did do it and they accepted it, they were actually quite welcoming to that this mm -hmm. particular class of the class of 1978, very welcoming. Um, so I thought that was a good, a really good turn of events. Yeah, it's an amazing turnaround. And I also found it fascinating that uh, that this wasn't just kind of like storytelling of how difficult it was. These were people who testified, who testified in front of Congress saying, you know, women cannot do this and should not do this, you know, uh, and African-Americans cannot do this, should not do this. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty open. It was an open conversation. Um, and, you know, some of it was hidden, but it was pretty open. <laughs> it was pretty open. Yeah. It was easy to find those records um, and hear those comments, you know. It's not the kind of thing you would you could imagine hearing, you know, uh, these days, unless it's maybe at, at Thanksgiving from an, an ancient relative you don't really want opening their mouth too much. <laughs> Hilarious. Yeah. So um, one of the so t tell me a little bit. There's um, the storylines as you went through the book and decided kind of who to contact. Obviously, uh, we, due to the disasters, especially uh, of Challenger and Columbia, there are those that are living in that class and those that are no longer with us. Um, what was it like putting together and doing your research and connecting with some of these individuals? It was great. It was my, it was the most fun part of the project for sure. Um, you know, a lot of times I just cold call, I mean, I cold called, I was not part of NASA's, uh, you know, I was not a 
a journalist that followed NASA, um, and most of what I was doing was cold calling. And so um, Anna Fisher in particular was very generous. Uh, she was one of the first people I called. I think she might have been the first person I called. And she gave me a lot of her time and then helped connect me to a lot of the other astronauts and NASA administration, most of whom had, you know, were in their 70s, 80s, and um, really fondly remembered the program and were just really generous with their time and talked, you know, gave me a lot of time. I did hundreds of interviews and um, it was it was for sure the most fun part of the of the book. That's that's fascinating. And I think, you know, one of the the storylines that seems common uh, through this, uh, Fred talked about it when he was on the show also, was how NASA's PR department, the, their their kind of media outreach with uh, uh, the woman who played uh, Lieutenant Uhura, uh, et cetera, changed literally the idea that we would publicize we're hiring for a role that people use colloquially as like you're not a rocket scientist, you're not an astronaut, like, and and yet here we are advertising for that. Can you can you tell me a little bit about that? Um, well. Initially, when NASA tried to um, recruit women and people of color, they didn't get a lot of response, and largely because the agency had had denied those people in the past, or people didn't understand or think that they could, it could be really true that they could become an astronaut, they weren't reaching the people they needed to reach, and so they got Nichelle Nichols, who played um, Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek, which was very famous at the time, to start doing these PSAs, and all of a sudden, they went from like, dribbles to the eight, I think it was 8,000 or 10,000, I would forget now, uh, applications. So all these applications started to flood in and Fred was one of them. I mean, he saw her and was like, oh, I, Fred, and then also Ron McNair, who ended up becoming an astronaut, they saw her and they were really inspired. They're like, oh, if she's telling me to do it, I'm going to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, they really looked at her as uh, um, emblematic of, um, you know, uh, space and science and science fiction. Anyway, they loved her and she was really an icon and she really helped the the, the process quite a bit. Yeah, I found that, that there it was interesting that so many different people had the same answer as to like what got you started, what made you apply to the program uh, and whether it was that campaign or just there's there's a lot of similarities in what actually got people into the program. Um, what else did you find that was kind of commonalities among some of these extremely accomplished individuals? Um, you know, one of the things is that, and, and it makes a lot of sense, is a, everybody was really fit and some mm -hmm. of them were exceptional. So Sally Wright, as an example, um, you know, had played professional tennis and was a, an exceptional tennis player. Um, I think that that physicality really helped her in what she ended up doing and becoming an astronaut. There is a physicality to it um, that's really important. And, and uh, Kathy Sullivan is another one. She's a exceptional uh, sailor and uh, racquetball player. And um, Judy Resnick was exceptional, uh, exceptional uh, pianist. Um, and 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 I think the dexterity that she got from that practice really helped. Um, so I think that was, you know, Ron McNair uh, was a black belt in karate, so Guy Bluford, you know, was a fighter pilot. Anyway, all of these, the physicality of them, and um, when you realize some of the things that they have to do, which is A, be physically fit to go up into space, but also when they get there, they have a lot of physical challenges, spacewalking is one of them, um, you know, when they go out side they've got a it's a physical exercise i mean it's it's a physical activity and they've got to be really fit to do it so i think that was the thing that was was ended up being a commonality among everybody yeah and there seems to also be some of that uh kind of right stuff in in each of them when it with each of the unique tasks and so it could be like controlling the the arm and the ability to do some of those things there was a story about that if you can tell me a little bit about Oh, about the arm, the robotic arm. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, it was interesting. The robotic arm, it's, it's funny how all these details end up controlling people's fates, but, you know, there was a big, um, everybody wondered, there were six women chosen in this class. Of the six women, one of them was going to be first. Being first meant a place in the history books. It was a big deal. And, you know, whether they overtly, you know, said that they wanted to go to be the first, I think every woman in that class, they were all type A, they wanted to be first. <laughs> And um, 
one of the things that helped determine who was chosen was the skill with the robotic arm. And the robotic arm was this, they called it a Canada arm. It was this, I think it was a hundred million dollar apparatus that would release, um, helped release satellites into or, or pull pay, payloads out of the bay. And it was used for a variety of other things too. But anyway, knowing how to operate that and to release a satellite was crucial. And Sally uh, Ride ended up being the first person chosen to go train. And she ended up being really, really good at it. Judy Resnick was second and she ended up being really, really good at it. And when the contest came, I mean, when this contest, when, when, the decision came down. It was Judy and 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 Sally who were really at the top of the list because of their ability with the robotic arm, and that all had to do with dexterity. It was like, you know, uh, in a way like an Atari, <laughs> a very advanced Atari uh, uh, module. But 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 the de their dexterity and their ability to repeat the same thing over and over again and get it perfect really helped uh, put them, you know, in in the category of getting chosen. Yeah, I, you know, we need to remember, of course, that at the time, the, the computer automation that was on the aircraft was just ancient. Even at the time, it was already for, the, for you know, for safety purposes and other redundancy purposes, uh, old. And, and so there were a lot of skills uh, and, and actual hand coordination and skills that were required in order to do this. And, and the book certainly chronicles um, a lot of that. One of the other things that is very very interesting is it goes through you go through in the book the the real story of the uh kind of uh, rogers commission and the investigation what happened um with challenger um can you tell us a little bit about that because we think of sally ride for you know what she accomplished kind of openly but not so much for uh really understanding what what took place throughout throughout some of that? Um, sure, yeah. I mean, for those who don't know, um, I'm sure most of your listeners do know, but, you know, the Challenger, um, the, the cause of the Challenger accident was this, fault, this faulty O-ring, and it was really um, a joint. I mean, the fault in the O-ring sat, sat in the joint of uh, the solid rocket boosters. It was really a solid rocket booster problem, and it was a design flaw. And these huge solid rocket boosters, which got the shuttle, the, the idea was that they were supposed to get the shuttle up into space, and then they would separate, and they'd fall back to the Earth, and then or fall back to the ocean, and then um, NASA would then go out on these barges and tow them back in. Well, they they got put together. Um, they were very large, and the way they they put got they got put back together, or they got put together and put back together using this the O-ring joint. And these O-rings are these kind of like like not plastic, but like kind of these rubber O's that kind of keep everything um, uh, fastened together. They also keep the hot gases from escaping through the joints and leaking into the um, the Challenger itself or the shuttle itself or harming the external tank or any of the other things. So anyway, the O-ring uh, joint system was faulty and the gases did leak. Um, the uh, This this faulty design um, happened and, and the O-ring leakage happened, the gas leakage, I should say, happened many times before, I think over a dozen times before on other shuttle flights. Um, so, and... That, that, let me just interrupt that. That is one of the things that's so fascinating is that this wasn't just something that happened then. And you really, I want to make, I want to hear from you also, you really detail the the personalities and the engineers, try, one in particular, trying to get the word out, trying to call attention to this. It didn't have to happen. Yeah. Yeah, there were, it, I mean... The one flight in particular, um, Ellison Onizuko, who was the first Asian American in space, he died on Challenger subsequently, but his flight, his first flight, there was a very bad case of it. And there was an engineer, Morton Thiekel was the subcontractor who worked for Marshall and they made the solid rocket boosters. They were out of Utah and an engineer who worked with them, who was in charge, he was overseeing the he was overseeing um, the solid rocket boosters being brought back on that particular mission, and he saw the soot, the burn, the burn through, and he he jumped up and down, and he tried to get to his superiors, and he, he wrote all kinds of memos, and he just wasn't able to get the attention or to or to even have them pause um, 
in flying take a pause. They they didn't want to take a pause because, and that's a whole other, you know, um, there was a lot of geo, I mean, geopolitical forces, honestly, at play. Um, why they didn't want to take a pause. Uh, they didn't want to take a pause because the shuttle at the time was the only way the Department of Defense could get its payloads to space. They didn't want to take a pause because um, the government and the Congress and the president were expecting the shuttle to, to be a commercial enterprise and to, they were selling space on the shuttle, you know, and, and um, you know, there was, there was so much pressure put on it, but the system itself, the shuttle itself probably didn't have enough money to do all the things that it said it could do anyway. Um, so there was so much pressure to fly and they basically, I won't say that they ignored the issue, but they shoved it to the side and they said, we'll fix it later and we'll come up. The reason they wanted to fix it later, honestly, was because to fix it, they had put a task force together. They realized it would cost a lot of money and they, it would take them off their flight schedule for years. And it, it did. And after the shuttle, um, after the Challenger happened, it took them, a, a, I think it was 18 months to two years to get back to flight. And that's what it took. And that's what they told them it would take. They had to do it anyway. Um, but anyway, the O-rings were a, a problem for a very, very long time. That said, the, the astronauts, we talked earlier a little bit about how the astronauts understood that there was a lot of danger associated. Well, they didn't know about the O-rings. They were never informed. Nobody I talked to said that they ever knew anything about O-rings. Um, and so this was very tragic that that for whatever reason um morton theichel and then marshall itself didn't bring this topic up to the astronaut office somehow the communication broke down and the the, the issue was never brought up either to the astronaut office or up the chain and so um so that is a long way of saying when challenger happened they didn't know right away that it was the o-rings but they knew they knew pretty soon they knew pretty soon because there was a, tr I mean, people understood, the people who knew, knew, and um, the people who didn't know saw the black smoke leak out, and it was very easy to figure out then what had happened and to find those SRBs in the recovery effort after Challenger. Um, that said, NASA did not want that information to come out, especially the people at Marshall didn't want that information to come out, and it didn't come out right away. Um, and the Rogers Commission was, um, of course, Sally Ride. I'm sorry, I'm going on and on, but I'm finally no, getting to your. <laughs> that's, getting that's, to that's why you're here, and I, I'm the one that asked you to make it even, even deeper. Yeah. But I'm going to tell you the, the drama yeah. that it, the drama that is in this, detailing that story, and and putting you in the place, especially uh, of that of, of the engineer who was just heartbroken and who knows what's happening, knew what was going to happen, and then saw it happen. Right. And and then watching and then tell me about that Sally Ride's involvement in the Rogers Commission because that that's like a made-for-TV movie in itself of bringing out the truth. Yeah, it's pretty incredible actually. So she was she was chosen for the Roger after it happened. Sally had actually wasn't on wasn't there for the launch, but she she came back. Obviously, she was on a plane flying back to Houston when it happened, and of course when it when she landed, found out the details and was recruited um, by Senator Rogers um, to be on the commission. She was the only astronaut uh, and the only sitting astronaut on the commission. Of course, she was extremely well known. She was the only woman as well. And, you know, because of her position, um, I think she was she was able to talk to the the astronauts who were still there and the administration who was still there and get information perhaps the other commissioners did not have. Anyway, um, what was happening was NASA was trying, was basically obfuscating that what had happened with the O-ring. Nobody wanted to admit it. Nobody wanted to admit it, admit that they had ignored it for so long. It was very embarrassing to say the least. Uh, embarrassing is not the right word for it. It was very tragic. And, um, Somebody, we don't know who, but likely an engineer, leaked a document to Sally and gave her information that showed that NASA knew or that people at NASA knew. And this was very, um, this was very, I think, tragic to her because the people, what she realized was her bosses and the people that she trusted were, were not to be trusted um, and that, that this information had been kept from the astronauts who ultimately died at the Challenger, but kept from her. And um, she was able to kind of, 
She didn't want to leak the document herself because she thought that would be too embarrassing for NASA, first woman, um, and here she was betraying, and here she was, you know, dropping this document. So she orchestrated, she gave it to somebody she trusted very much on the commission, and he leaked it to somebody else who was a third party, uh, Richard Feynman, who was, of course, um, a professor of physics, had nothing to do with NASA, was a third party, and he was able to then kind of put it all together for people on the commission in this very dramatic way. And I don't know if people remember that, but he, he took a he took a, a piece of the O-ring and he dipped it into cold water and then he showed everybody that it 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 doesn't stretch into it won't stretch when it's cold and that was to go even further to, I mean the day that Challenger launched was a very particularly cold day and what the what the theory was that the cold um, uh, made the O-ring unable to move into place it was not malleable enough to move into place and it was brittle and as because that of because it was brittle you know the gas kind of snuck through um, so this was the thing that finally put it all together and also um, revealed to the commission that um, NASA knew this information and was hiding it a very tragic uh, but very necessary um, moment and 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 dramatic and, and dramatic the i it i know you're talking you are obviously talking about making a movie out of uh, uh, the book but it, it it reads like a movie there is this those moments of what happened in real life that are on a commission but might as well be a courtroom or something like that where people finally speak where things all of a sudden come out and you it's truth is crazier than fiction it, it, it more dramatic than, than fiction in some cases and this is one that i wasn't even aware of even though it's my generation i, I remember getting pulled out of class in school to see the first shuttle launch on, mm -hmm. uh, on television and mm -hmm. and yet i don't remember those seminal moments and really how dramatic uh, finding out what was happening behind the scenes about this program were. Yeah, it, it just, some of those, the, the scenes I'm describing were closed door sessions um, and are written about in books and memoirs uh, or, you know, I talked to folks about it uh, who were there. Um, some of them are available. You can still see them on C-SPAN. Um, but, um, you know, a lot of it was closed door sessions. And of course, Alan McDonald, who ran the task force, uh, the O-ring task force at uh, Morton Cycle and was also a whistleblower in this case, you know, has a great book, you know, Truth, Lies, and O-rings. And he's since passed on, but that book I thought was very um, insightful in terms of what it was like to actually be there uh, and, and be in these rooms where your bosses didn't want you to say anything and, and, and you wanted to say something. And, Anyway, um, but Alan McDonald was one was one of the engineers that uh, that tried to get the truth out. I, th I think the other thing which is interesting is um, we, as I've mentioned, we've we've had astronauts on the show before, and they there's there is this um, this, this this sincerity of science and of accountability that seems to be a common thread to all astronauts that I've ever met. Um, and and yet the the unfortunately there was this issue that we we're talking about with Challenger of an organizational breakdown and problem, which then unfortunately went on to sort of repeat itself with Columbia. Tell me a little bit of what happened in in the organization with that, because you never want to, of course, you know, repeat mistakes of the past. Yeah. You know, after Challenger, the return to flight effort, I think, was a big success. And for years, the shuttle flew extremely successfully um, and did all these amazing things like get the Hubble Space Telescope uh, up into space, um, like help build the International Space Station. Um, Columbia came along in, oh, gosh, I'm trying to do the math, not 20 years, um, but almost 20 years from the um from the challenger accident so quite a bit of time had passed and 
I think some of the lessons had been forgotten, you know, yeah. from Challenger. And I won't say not learned because I think they were learned, but maybe forgotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what, you know, uh, in a similar fashion, there was an ongoing engineering problem, which was the foam falling off of these, the external tank and hitting, or debris, I should say, debris hitting the uh, shuttle as it was taking off. Now, this was something that had happened even in STS-1, where tiles were damaged on takeoff, and it was something that had consistently happened throughout the course of the shuttle itself. In this particular instance in at Columbia, when the um, when the orbiter took off, there was external foam. Uh, the, the external the foam off the external tank hit and damaged the tiles, and the engineers that saw it. Uh, that you know, and especially that you know, they went back and they looked at the the footage. Were very concerned because they said it was the largest piece of foam they had ever seen hit. It they had seen things hit before, but this was the it was like a briefcase size and it was very large. And they were concerned about where it hit, which was like the underside, and um, you know where the shuttle has to come back in, uh, and it's and it's facing um, you know the, it's a heat shield where the heat shield is, uh, and um, so you know they went up. Uh, Columbia went up. Columbia was a, a space hab flight, which was not an ISS flight. Most the, at this point, NASA is very, very concerned about building the International Space Station. We had a lot of promises. Same kind of thing. We rushed a flight. We had a lot of promises to our international partners. We had to build things. We had to get the shuttle up. Space hab was an experiment. Was um, a science flight, and it was the exception to the ISS. Not a lot of people were paying attention to Columbia. People weren't even watching when it lifted off or came back. Um, so when it came back, again, most of America had lost interest in the space shuttle. They weren't, wa- only space enthusiasts were watching it. And when it came back, of course, those tiles were missing and in exactly the way that the, the uh, engineers said that they were and the accident happened and it was incinerated as it came into, it basically, the the heat from reentry penetrated, it went right through the tile, the missing tiles, and it, it destroyed the orbiter. Now, while they were in flight, there were many attempts, much like Challenger, there were many attempts by engineers to get the attention of the administrators, and the administrators did not pay attention to their engineers. And so it was very similar to um, Challenger in that way. Once again, Sally Ride came back and uh, was on the commission and said that this is an echo of Challenger. And by that time, I think this was this particular accident was sort of the death knell for the shuttle. And Sally, along with the other um, people on the commission, you know, basically said, look, the shuttle is too dangerous. We need to look into other designs. And that was the beginning of the end for the shuttle. Now, it still flew until 2011 and did a lot of other great things, but it was the beginning of the end. Um, so. Yeah, it, it's interesting to me. You know, uh, 86 was Challenger crest, as you mentioned, 2003, uh, Columbia. And I think, obviously, the story is one of complacency because you tell a story in the very beginning about uh, how damage to a tile uh, was was so important that the decision was made to use a secret spy satellite to try to spot what the extent of the damage was. And, and yet 2003 comes along and, and, and that isn't even on people's radar. Tell us that first story a little bit. Um, well, it's a great story. The story of STS-1 is pretty awesome. Um, um, you know, it was a, the shuttle was a test vehicle and it was a manned test. I mean, the first time anyone went up into space, they went with humans, right? And which is unheard of in that's, a way. That's I mean, a crazy part, that part by the way. Yeah. That's absolutely crazy and never even occurred to me. Like you, we talk about, you know, all these different launches. You're even watching today all the different types of launches by SpaceX and others of unmanned, unmanned, and then we're going to have it be manned. But the first shuttle launch was manned. It was manned. I mean, which is like, uh, are you signing a, your your you know death sentence here? But you know, there they went. And um, you know, when they when they they sent two two astronauts when they got there. Um, well, even before that, they knew that the tile damage could be a problem. And um, Anna Fisher, who um, was in class seventy eight, was asked uh, along with a group of other astronauts to try to figure out if if the tile got damaged, which they knew it might, 
could you do a repair on orbit? And you know, she came back and said, if you want to do that or develop the technology for that, it's going to take millions of dollars and we're going to push this thing another two years. And so the astronauts who were flying said, we don't want to do that. We're going to take the risk. We're dying to fly. Like, this is our job. Let us do it. Do it. So they went up. And of course, they get there. And Bob Crippen, who's the pilot, opens up the payload doors. And he can see, he gets his first look at the damage. And, you know, it's definitely a moment that I think made his heart stop. And he said, oh, this is exactly what we were fearing. And they wanted to know, they needed to know whether or not the tile damage was in a place that would have been dangerous for reentry. And so at the time, they got the Department of Defense. The Department of Defense had a role at NASA. They were planning on sending their own astronauts. Um, they had a presence at NASA. Um, and... Uh, they had a language, they had a conversation, you know, there was a conversation between NASA and the Department of Defense, an open communication. And so um, the people who were in the middle of that conversation said, well, let's, we know that there are spy satellites up there that we've put up there. We're going to take a, you know, if we get this cosmic ballet going where the shuttle passes this way and the spy satellite passes this way at exactly the right moment with the sun shining, we can take a picture and they did it. Uh, which is, it was like a miracle. I mean, it wasn't a miracle, but it was like a very awesome thing that they did. And so they did it. Not that many people really knew about it. it was because nobody was supposed to know that spy satellite was there. Anyway, they did it and they let the astronauts know, hey, look, the uh, the tiles are not in a place that's dangerous to come home. You can come home safely. And they came home. So the same thing happened with Columbia. And of course, the engineers who remembered STS-1 said, let's go do the same thing. And there was this strange, I still don't understand it. I've read about it a million times. I do not understand why the administrator who was in charge basically put a stop to the request. And I think if I, if I, the best I can interpret it, it was she didn't want people to go around her, um, that she was uncomfortable with uh, the office politics of it. And so she put a, she ended the request to the DOD that these engineers had made and we never knew where the damage was or had any decent pictures of it so that we could have told them you're not going to make it home say goodbye to your families or let's try a rescue mission or anything we just didn't have the knowledge so i think that was very troubling and it was something that was something anna fisher actually um was on a commission and researched that and you know found it very troubling indeed that they they just didn't they didn't try the way nasa normally does so yeah, and, and it's a story of politics, I think, uh, um, uh, at at least e even inter-office politics or, or 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 something like that, more than anything else. It, it's um, it's amazing. Now you also have, of course, some much more lighthearted things, but it starts with those tiles. I'm not giving away too much because there's so much, so much into this into this book. But uh, it's still, some of the stories you talk about the things like the glue was drying too quickly and the tiles and it turns out that well you you tell it <laughs> that was pretty wild i mean some of the you just realize like this was a startup enterprise it reminds me of some of the things people are probably doing in san francisco to like make tech companies work um and it was a startup enterprise anyway so the, i mean two of the funny things that they would do um they <laughs> The glue, basically the system by which they would adhere, uh, uh, you know, put the tiles on the shuttle wasn't working. And there's it's so complicated as to why it wasn't working, but it wasn't working. And all the tiles started falling off. The bad news was all the tiles were starting falling off and they were going to, they were, it was going to put the uh, maiden voyage of, um, of Columbia back even further and set the program back. Um, so they had to basically take a lot of the tiles off and paste them back on. And they hired all kinds of people to do it. Um, people on spring break. I mean, just anybody, <laughs> any, any available body they got in there. A lot of people were not trained and the, the, the glue would, would, would dry so quickly that a lot of these technicians got frustrated. And so what they would do is they would spit in the glue to make <laughs> last, like not, and then, but that ended up causing its own problems. Like the glue wasn't as sticky. You think? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and they didn't figure it out. I mean, these are the kinds of things like, you're like, why isn't it working the way we thought it was working? Well, we've got the human element. And so that was one thing. Um, I mean, another thing which Kathy Sullivan told me, I think it was on STS-2, 
that was that it rained so hard that the tile and the tiles were very porous and so they soaked up a lot of water and as a result the shuttle ended up being a lot heavier which is a problem for thrust and a problem with you know when you're calculating how much power you need to launch this thing up in the air. So they didn't have a good solution. So they went out, and I'm not even choking. She told me this. They bought Scotchgard, like just good old-fashioned Scotchgard that you get at the hardware store and sprayed the shuttle with Scotchgard. That was their solution. It's 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 just it's absolutely crazy. And and then some of them are just human stuff. When you talk about the first time that uh, NASA is considering what does it mean to have women become part of the space program and you say okay well what about menstrual cycles what you know what about tampons and is it true that some extraordinarily uninformed guy thought perhaps you'd need what a hundred for yeah. to tell me this they needed to put together a toiletry bag for women that was, you know, they had they hadn't dealt with this before, and so they were putting together. It was for Sally, and they were putting together her toiletry bag, and of course they included makeup. And she's like, I don't wear makeup in real life, but okay. uh, and then she's like, she's like, she she was with I guess Kathy. Kathy told me this story too. It was Kathy Sullivan, and she was she started pulling out like she almost looked like you know hot dogs on a string <laughs> like she started pulling out these things she was what is this and they had strung together a hundred tampons um with the string and the string was so that they wouldn't float away into the cabin and then they gave her a little pair of scissors to cut them up anyway yeah she said a hundred they gave her a hundred um so yeah so someone had uh, never uh ever been around women or had daughters or anything like that to decide that well you're going up for a week what's that number i don't know <laughs> yeah, just, yeah that seems fine no google then no google so. <laughs> um there's also quite a few interesting stories involving bathrooms um there are there was uh, i think with with um sally I think they called it the sal. They well, anyway, it was um, you know they had the toilet, but the toilet they they see for modesty purposes they put a a uh, a curtain up for her, and I think they call it the Sally Ride Modesty Curtain or some some ridiculous name. I, I'm sure that's wrong, but it's something like that. So there was this modesty curtain. A lot of people asked lots of questions about how she would go to the restroom with all those men on board. So anyway, that was pretty hilarious. Um, but um, there were also, going to the restroom was is quite difficult in space and there was a lot of training around it. And it was, you know, it happened here and there that people would break the toilets uh, and um, that would always be terrible. <laughs> I think Fred was guilty of that. <laughs> Yes, Fred was guilty of that. Um, yes, he something about when he flushed, it broke the toilet, and it was. Just, you just don't want to lose your toilet on a seven-day mission. That's all I can say. I, I, yeah, and I, I think they almost doomed a mission with uh, uh, with with problems that that even the arm ended up. You talk about, you know, the the dexterity uh, of uh, of the arm and the ability to control it, and in the end, it was about fixing a toilet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was um, a, a there was something wrong with the waste. Uh, how they got rid of the waste, and basically a a huge pea sickle formed outside of the of the toilet at some point. <laughs> they had to knock the pea sickle over, melt it, whatever they needed to do with it. But eventually, they ended up using the arm to knock it off, so it wouldn't That's damage it during reentry. Yeah, it's 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 amazing now. Um, I'd like to cover some of the firsts because it's it I'd like people really to know who who makes up this. Obviously, Sally Ride, who who's no longer with us, first American woman in space. Um, Guy Bluford, the first African American in, in space, um, killed on in Challenger. Um, Ron McNair was the second and also um, uh, kill, uh, uh, killed on Challenger. And please correct me if I'm wrong on any of these. Uh, Judy Resnick, the first Jewish American in space. Mm -hmm. um, Anna Fisher, the first mother and fourth American woman. Kathy Sullivan, the first American woman to perform a spacewalk. Um, Ray, who uh, was the fifth woman, uh, she flew on three space shuttle missions, is that correct? And is, that, yeah. is also part of the star-studded pair with, with her and Hoot Gibson. 
um, married. Um, uh, Shannon Lucid, tell me a little bit about Shannon, because she she really spent her her thing was about duration actually more yeah. than anything else. Yeah. And Guy Bluford, actually the first uh, African American in space, is still with us. And Ron McNair was the one who died on Challenger. Oh, my um, mistake. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. And Guy is a very was a very talented uh, fighter pilot in Vietnam, um, and was chosen for that and for other reasons. Um, but he's also an engineer. And then Shannon um, was the last to fly. However, she beat the record for number of days in space of any of the new guys. Um, as she flew um, on uh, space, uh, she flew on Mir. So as uh, when Russia, when the Cold War warmed up. Um, uh, Russia and the United States began to partner and in preparation for building the International Space Station of uh, several American astronauts flew on Mir and she was one of them and she spent um, oh gosh uh, over a hundred days with uh, Yuri and Yuri <laughs> two Russian guys up in space and she did it um, you know in I think she was in her early 50s when she did it so she was not young um, but did a remarkable job and uh, broke the record for a number of days in space for this group. That's that's truly amazing. And uh, then, of course, Fred, we mentioned uh, Hoop Gibson and Steve Hawley. Um, who have you made connections with? Uh, we talked about this a little bit in the beginning, but uh, going through this process of of writing the book, I have to imagine it's a little similar to kind of the things that, that I've experienced with this show. You make connections that are um, probably life-lasting uh, with, with some of the folks. Tell me a little bit about what the experience has done for you in, in writing the book and changing kind of your world of connections. Mm -hmm. It's been so fun. Um, I mean, listening, it's, it's, it's been so fun because it's so out of my, it was so out of my wheelhouse. Um, and uh, now I'm trying to make all my children become scientists. <laughs> I wish I had studied science, but I ended up as a writer. Anyway, um, but um, no, it just gave me a big appreciation for scientists and, um, you know, the careers that they've had. And, um, you know, Anna Fisher was probably the first person I talked to, and she's become a dear friend. Um, Kathy Sullivan is so fearless and so fun to follow. I follow her on social media and I check in with her every once in a while and she's great. Fred Gregory is just the warmest, nicest guy. Guy Bluford, Shannon Lucid is a hoot. <laughs> she is really funny. Um, Ray Seddon, I mean, all of them are just wonderful. And um, it's been really lovely getting to know everybody. My daughter now wants to be an astronaut. That's probably the biggest way it might change my life. She. She makes me take her to Cape Canaveral all the time. So, um, yeah, that's probably, <laughs> I think I just, just but, but that, that reorienting, you know, um, I follow science news obsessively now. And um, so it's really changed my, uh, or broadened my horizon, I should say. It's, I think it's a, it's a wonderful lesson and example in kind of diving out of, out of your comfort zone, changing things in, in your life and how it kind of broadens broadens everything and enriches your life when you do something like that. You started, and your background, as we mentioned in the beginning, was actually not even in media and, and production. What got you to leave that behind? I mean, with an incredible resume of, of uh, Harvard and, and, and the things that you came from, and then uh, jumping off into film and, and media. Um, it's a really good question. You know, I, I think I like telling stories. I was a journalist. I focused a lot on U.S. politics, and um, I focused in particular on economics. And um, even that, there was, even with economics, it's all about the story you tell. I mean, people think economics is um, a science. It's not exactly a science. It's a social science, um, but uh, open to interpretation uh, in many ways. But it was it was really about, been politics is about telling a story. It's what is the story you're telling? And so it was a natural, I think, transition for me um, to move into filmmaking and, um, and this kind of storytelling, uh, which is more of character focus. I think people, I also think people relate to it more. People love to hear a story about other people and what they went through and the struggles that they went through. Um, so I really love, I love character-based storytelling and that's kind of where I landed. What was the first, how did you actually jump out and, and take the risk to go do, do that? What was your, what was the first thing you remember of, uh, of kind of jumping into the industry? 
Um, I remember that um, I graduated from law school. I took a job at a law firm and then I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And I decided to apply for this assistant job at DreamWorks, which was Steven Spielberg's company, starting over again, basically. And um, uh, my boss, who I'm still friends with today, she, she hired me even though I was a total dork <clears throat> and um, <laughs> I showed up, nobody in Hollywood wears a suit, but I showed up in like a Navy blue suit and like my and, and a resume that probably didn't say assistant all over it. No, but she, she had faith in me. <laughs> she, so she gave me a shot and then I ended up staying at DreamWorks for a long time and I learned storytelling there, filmmaking um, from a lot of really great people, great executives. And um, so that was my entry. Interesting. And and what, I mean, tell me a little bit about that environment that, that got you, that kind of got you that base level education that allowed you to kind of strike out on your own now with, uh, with your own company and Big Swing Productions. Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, there was a couple that ran DreamWorks at the time. There were uh, Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald. And I sat with them. I was their executive and or their um, junior executive. And they kind of would storyboard stuff like old fashioned with like note cards. And like that's how they did Gladiator and like, you know, all these amazing movies, The Ring. And uh, they did American Beauty at that time. So a lot of really great films, uh, Dream Girls. And it all went up on the storyboard and it was all structured and and so I learned that craft from them and all of the people who were at DreamWorks whether it was Steven Spielberg's office who did it uh, or the writers who came in <clears throat> and did it and um, it was just it's great it was a great learning experience I'll never forget it and that just serves you even when you're just you know you're doing a regular just a, a journalistic enterprise it's like that idea of story the three-act structure and the, you know all of the hero's journey it all it all still works and did you do the same concept when you were putting the book together? <clears throat> I sure did. Yep, I had. Yeah. What is my? What is the character's wound? <laughs> what is their? What are their challenges? What do they want? Um, what is their low moment? And we, I tracked it through the book to make sure everybody had these little moments. And it doesn't always work with narrative nonfiction. It just doesn't because you have to tell the story that actually happened. But um, but you can kind of frame it in a way that is narratively interesting to a reader. I think. I think what's fascinating is, although uh, although it's true, obviously you can't do it for everyone. With this particular class uh, that uh, and this group that that you chronicle in the book, there's there's enough of that that many of them really do have those moments, so all of those kind of hero moments and and setbacks and challenges. You are able to put it together, and and so I just want to commend you on that, and, and certainly. Uh, um, uh, recommend to everyone, of course, that they uh, that they they get the book, they read the book. We have just scratched the surface. It's truly wonderful, and um, and really does chronicle all these things that have come together in your career to to put you at this point. So, uh, what it just tells what's next at this point for Meredith Bagby. Um, well, I hope that we're able to turn the book into a TV show, and of course there's a writer's strike out in Hollywood, but we are hoping that that gets resolved soonish and that we're able to kind of yeah, peddle our wares out to um, the, uh, some, uh, some studios out there, um, and then I'll probably turn um, my interest on to the, moon, the Moonshot, which is NASA's next chapter. Um, I'm having fun kind of learning about the Artemis program and all the challenges that they're going to face um, and the excitement around that. So that's that's my next project. Well, we will be eagerly uh, awaiting your next project, and I can't wait to have you back on to talk about that one when that comes out as as well. So just thank you so much. Thank you for making a wonderful book and uh, and, and for coming on Social Flight Live tonight and sharing so many of these details with us. Well, thank you for such a thoughtful conversation. I really enjoyed it, Jeff. Absolutely. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you. You too. Good night. And thanks to all of you for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. We'll be back next Tuesday, June 20th, with Brian Udell, the uh, man who was ejected at 800 miles an hour, supersonic ejection in a fighter pilot. Uh, in a fighter aircraft and lived to tell the story. It is fascinating. His life story is also fascinating. And he will be here next Tuesday at 8 p.m. The following Tuesday on June 27th, F-117 stealth fighter pilot Thad Darger will be here 
and uh, he's a wonderful, wonderful individual, and I cannot wait for you all to meet him as well. One last note, again, uh, for my good friend and uh, and just a wonderful individual, uh, Treat Williams. We have uh, two shows that uh, were with Treat that are available on our YouTube channel and also on podcast. I would encourage anyone who has time to uh, take a moment and uh, have an opportunity to uh, to see how remarkable he was and to get a little taste of his life force in those shows. And until next time, I wish you all blue skies.